0: Well, as Pastor Doug said, my name is Vashawn Moore and I'm one of the uh, lay elders here at Grace Bible. And I grew up in the deep south in the Pentecostal tradition. And as a kid, I attended the church pastored by my grandfather. Now my grandfather was a, a very charismatic and animated man. So when he preached, it was reminiscent of some of America's early evangelistic preachers, like a Billy Graham, for instance. And his style was, I guess, akin to what you might come to expect from a Pentecostal preacher. A little pulpit-thumping, sonorous exclamations about the love of Christ and the praise due his name. He also had a radio broadcast, a weekly broadcast, called the Redemption Hour. And, And here in the Redemption Hour, the emphasis was very much on the preached Word of God with convincing oratory about the gospel of Christ because, after all, it was Jesus who came and lived amongst men. It was Jesus who died. It was Jesus who was resurrected. And it is Jesus Christ alone who could save the sinner. And at the end of every radio broadcast were these words. Have you been redeemed? Have you been washed by the blood of the lamb? And it's a refrain I'll never forget. Have you been redeemed? Have you been washed by the blood of the lamb? It was, it was really something to behold, but as a kid, I can just kind of remember thinking, you know, I, I, I get who Jesus is. And the line, it's getting kind of old. So, so granddaddy, don't you have something else to say? And I, as we look at today's passage, continue, continuing our study in John's first epistle, I imagine some of you will perhaps say, okay, John, we get it. We get who Jesus is isn't there something else you have to say? And that's just it. I I think John understands our propensity to wanna move past Jesus onto something more thrilling, something more profound as we live out our faith. I think he understands our proclivity to take the gospel for granted. So John repeats the message of the centrality of Jesus the Christ, because he knows that this is the message upon which everything pivots. He gets that it is Jesus alone who gives us eternal life. So let us read God's words from 1 John 5, verses 6 through 12. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that he is born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has a testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. As if in a courtroom, presenting his case and calling forth witnesses, John presents a three-pointed case to prove Jesus is the Messiah, God incarnate, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And here's the case. First, it's the claim itself. Second, the claim's confirmation, and third, the claim's consequences. First, the claim. John's claim is that Jesus is the Messiah, God incarnate, and we see this in verses 6a and 6b. Now, before we delve into this claim, let me add that according to Martin Lloyd-Jones, verses six through eight are, without question, the most difficult in this epistle, if not the most difficult, in a sense, in the entire Bible. And so I would like to thank Pastor Doug for letting this extremely new elder cut his teeth on this difficult passage. I love you, Doug. Yes. Now the primary reason Lloyd-Jones finds this passage so difficult has to do with understanding the phrase water and blood. Now whether or not you agree with him, this phrase is at least very interesting and needs to be understood in order for us to properly understand What is it exactly John wants to convey to us? But before we go there, let's read verses 6a and b again regarding the claim. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Here in verse 6a, John provides three indicators to support his claim that Jesus is the Messiah, God incarnate. The first, it's in the name itself, Jesus Christ. We know from verse five that Jesus is the Son of God, but now John is really more concerned with Jesus the Son of God who came to save, the Messiah, God incarnate. So, Jesus is the boy in Bethlehem, reared in a small village called Nazareth, the boy who argued with religious leaders in the temple, the man who worked as a carpenter, the man who hungered and thirst and wept, and yet, he is also the Christ. A title given him by God. Now we know that Christ is in his last name, and yet it's, instead it's a title that means God's anointed one. So Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, God incarnate. The second indicator is in verse 6a, and it's in the phrase, he who came. The gospel references the Messiah as the one who is coming. For instance, in Matthew 11:3. And John said to him, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? On Palm Sunday, all four gospels record the crowd referencing words from Psalm 118, verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in John 11:27, Martha confesses, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So John, looking back on his own personal experience, now confirmed Jesus' ministry and his work on the cross as a historical reality. Commentator Yarbrough puts it this way. In John's understanding, Jesus is God incarnate. Full-orbed, redemptive faith in Jesus Christ recognizes that he and no other is the one who came from heaven to be God's saving agent in the earthly domain. He is the promised Messiah, the the long anticipated one whose purpose was to bring salvation to all mankind. And the third indicator we have in verse 6a that Jesus is the Messiah, God incarnate, lies in the aforementioned difficulty in this somewhat puzzling phrase of water and blood. Now part of the difficulty in understanding water and blood is in the fact that John doesn't explicitly tell us what he means. So we we need to wade into it a little bit to figure out what John is writing. And the two best arguments for what it means are, well, first, water and blood refers to what flows from Jesus' side on the cross. This argument certainly means to validate John's point that the Messiah came in the flesh, and it's also a perspective advocated by some very prominent theologians, including a theological hero of mine, R.C. Sproul. So it's certainly not a crazy interpretation, but one I'm officially going on record as disagreeing with, and here's why. Well, this view fails to account for the separation of the three that testify in verse eight with the use of the conjunction and and the use of the definite article, the. So it's the spirit and the water and the blood, three witnesses, not just water and blood, one, spirit, two, but three witnesses. And it appears that John really wants to to keep these distinct and separate. And the second best argument for the meaning of water and blood is that it represents Jesus' baptism and his death. And this is the perspective that I think fits best with this passage. And I believe this because he who came by water and blood described the means by which John is validating the historical reality of Jesus' incarnation and his messiahship. Jesus' baptism, the water, and his death, the blood, both identify how Jesus's mission of salvation was achieved by both the water and the blood. In his baptism, Jesus identified with the sinners. He came to save. And in, in his death on the cross, he expiates, he reconciles, and he redeems them. Matthew 26, verse 28. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Romans 3:25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. Hebrews 9, 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Furthermore, John's use of water and blood in this way justified that Jesus was just not an apparition, but he was truly God and truly man, the God-man. And by doing this, John was refuting the heretical notion that the false teachers taught that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. This could also be yet another way of pushing back another false teaching present at the time, which taught that Jesus of Nazareth was a mere man on whom the divine Christ came upon during his baptism, but right before his crucifixion, Christ, incapable of suffering, returned to heaven, and only the Jesus, the man, was crucified. But John's assertion in 6b that Jesus Christ came not only by the water, but not only by the water, but also by the water and the blood, militates against any such notion. He is insisting that Jesus Christ is one person, the God-man, the divine, and the human, two natures existing in the incarnate Son, the Messiah. Now, all of this isn't just to refute heretical teachings, For John, correctly understanding the person of Jesus is essential to everything he's previously written. So so John is saying, as the God-man, Jesus Christ is our Messiah, not only identified with our heinous sins in baptism, but he liberated us on the cross. And if he had not, there would be no power for the believer. No power to obey, no power over sin, no power over the flesh, no power over the world, and no power over the devil. Without Jesus the Christ, as he discussed in verse 5, there is no we are overcomers, no overcoming covetousness, no overcoming hatred for the brethren, no victory over poor financial stewardship, no victory over gossiping, over depression, over guilt, anxiety, or loneliness, no way to be vessels of God's pleasure to bring glory to his name. Instead, There'd only be the continued, vile, and flaunting rebellion, screaming that we know better because we can do better on our own. So John makes the claim that the Messiah, God incarnate, he is Jesus the Christ. But he doesn't rest his case there. And that brings us to our second main point, which is the claim's confirmation. Let's read verses 6C through 9 again. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony, God, that he has borne concerning his Son. So first, John brings in a heavy hitter to validate his testimony. He says, it's the Spirit who testifies, And he specifically provides the description, the spirit is the truth. Effectively, John is saying, you don't have to listen to me, but you need to listen to the spirit. What does the spirit have to say? So according to John's gospel, chapter 15, verse six, it's the spirit's prerogative to testify about Jesus. But when he, the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And because the spirit is the truth, his testimony is incapable of fallacy. It's utterly reliable. It's dependably accurate. And to what about Jesus does he bear witness? Well, one of the things to which he bears witness is to the objective, external, historical events of Jesus' baptism and his crucifixion, validating the fact that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. At Jesus' baptism, the spirit is the one who descended on him like a dove. And in John's gospel, Jesus' death is tied to the giving of the Spirit when he breathed on his disciples post resurrection and he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. What's more, Romans chapter 8 tells us that the Spirit was also involved in raising Christ from the dead, the ultimate indicator that Jesus was the anointed one of God. And if the Spirit bears witness to these events, we should feel confident doing the same. Because giving testimony about Christ's resurrection is a remarkably forceful witness to the gospel and an apologetic or defense for the gospel. Somewhat recently, I was uh, having what I'll call faith discussions with some of my unbelieving co-workers in Old Town Alexandria. And after much debate, I brought up the objective reality of the resurrection of Christ to substantiate the claim that Jesus was the Messiah specifically because one of them was, let's call him Joe, he had some rather scathing and vehement denunciations about the gospel narrative. But when when I pressed him, when I confronted him with the historical reality of an empty tomb, I found that his arguments became less and less persuasive. And so by the time I hopped in my Uber to return home, we were still in disagreement. And this, this, this bothered me immensely. I mean, why didn't he just capitulate in the face of such overwhelming evidence? Didn't get it. So as we're pulling off, I spot them walking on the sidewalk. And still greatly disturbed and very much pensive, I hurriedly lowered the window, and I shouted, not thinking that anyone would hear, what did they do with the body, Joe? <laughs> Where is the body? Now, you get the awkwardness of the moment, yeah? And I didn't get it until I saw the, the myriad of LOL emojis in the group chat. However, the cops didn't come to the house later, so it was, it's all good. And I still didn't get a good answer from Joe. But neither do I expect to. Why? Because the Spirit of God really did raise Jesus from the dead, amen? Praise God. Now, some of you are looking at your Bibles that have a footnote in verse seven. Or it's in the main text, if you're looking at the KJV and it's there on the screens and I'll, I'll read it. And it says, for there are three witnesses who testify in heaven, Father, Word, and Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And, the, and, the, and there are three who testify on earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three are one. So let me explain what we're dealing here with what we're dealing. This phrase is intended to highlight the Trinity's involvement in salvation which for sure is very biblical. That said, this line is not part of the original oldest manuscripts that we have and the oldest manuscripts that we have, but was added much later in church history. So although it's theologically correct, the line isn't what we would consider, again, to be original. Therefore, at best, in most translations, it's relegated to a footnote. Okay, so we're going to move on. In verse seven, John continues his confirmation of the claim that Jesus is the Messiah, God incarnate. He presents the second confirmation by telling us what may not have been obvious to some of us in verse six that there are actually three who testify. Now for John, this is not an insignificant point. Not only has he identified truth itself giving testimony, namely the spirit, but he bolsters the the authenticity and the reliability of his claim by adhering to a principle in Deuteronomy 19 of having two or three witnesses in order to establish a testimony. And also, notice the change from the past tense in verse 6a to the present tense in verse 7. It's not that the Spirit, the water, and the blood testified once and for all and took a leave of absence. No, the Spirit continuously testifies about the objective reality of God incarnate animating two inanimate objects in the life of Christ, that is the water and the blood, so that they too testify and enliven the hearts of God's covenantal people. And not only that, but verse eight tells us that these witnesses agree in their testimonies. And they agree because the leading witness is the spirit, the truth. The water and blood are dependent on him. So John has naturally shifted the word order from verse six where the spirit is last to now being preeminently first here in verse eight because without the spirit, Christ's baptism and his death become just mundane, bland events within the course of human history. So from John's perspective, the truthfulness and the trustworthiness of testimonies by the spirit, the water and blood about Jesus the Messiah are absolutely irrefutable. But ultimately for John, confirmation of the claim reaches a crescendo in verse 9 when he declares, and here's the third confirmation, that this is a testimony of God. This is not testimony of mere human origin. God is the subject here. So that in the end, it's his testimony. The spirit is God and the water and the blood events are those eternally designed by God. The testimony is God's. There is no higher authority, no more credible source, no more untainted witness than God Himself. So, John begins verse 9 by arguing from the lesser to the greater. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God, it has to be greater. It's not that John doesn't recognize the validity of human witnesses, but now he's saying, and somewhat incredulously, if you can accept the testimonies of fallible men, how can you, then you, how can you then possibly neglect the report of God Himself? But even so, the primary reason God's testimony is greater than man's is not, it, it's not, it doesn't lie in the qualitative distinction between God the Creator and man the created. Rather, it is precisely, precisely because God's testimony is about his son. And perhaps commentator Karen Jobes captures it best when she says, the author of 1 John assumes that his testimony about the truth stands in unbroken lineage back to God's testimony about Jesus. And he is zealous to protect it from all other errant claims of truth. The witness of the Spirit, the water, and the blood are integrally a part of God's testimony Therefore, 5.9 is making not just a general claim that God's testimony is greater than human testimony, but the specific claim that the nature of God's testimony is about Jesus, not anything or anyone else. So by now, some of you are undoubtedly relating to 10-year-old Vashon listening to granddaddy's redemption hour, specifically and resignedly saying, okay, I get it. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one who is to come. To which I reply, well, amen. Then you get my point. Indeed, you get John's point. And actually, you get God's point. It is all about Jesus. And it always will be about Jesus. And he will return, but this time, not as suffering servant, but as triumphant judge and king. And that's why John gives us our third and final point. First, Jesus is the Messiah, God incarnate. Second, God's testimony confirms this claim. And our last point, there are consequences of the claim. One has to make a choice. One must either accept or reject Jesus as Messiah. Let's read verses 10 through 12. Whoever believes in the Son of God has a testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has a son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life these verses could be summed up as follows. Believers accept the testimony of God that Jesus is the Son, the promised Messiah, and thereby have the testimony of truth within, but unbelievers reject the testimony and make God a liar. Believers have the Son and therefore have eternal life, but unbelievers do not have the Son and do not have eternal life. John's pastoral concern has reached a zenith. And hence these words should be construed not as, a comment, not as condemnation, but more as an appeal. According to commentators, the manner of his writing in these verses, that is the, the stark contrasting parallels without the use of adjoining conjunctions, highlights the need for a decision. John places before his readers, on the one hand, eternal blessedness. On the other, eternal wrath. On the one, life, and the other, death. And it is the reader that must choose. Look at verse 10. John uses the word believe three times, emphasizing that the hearer is obliged to do something. But it's not intellectual assent to truth propositions or, or doctrinal claims in which John is most interested. Rather, John's goal is that his readers would place their complete and personal trust and God's Son. And in lieu of a static one-time belief, the present tense conveys that it's an ongoing believing. The precise expression John uses here is literally believing into the Son. And it connotes a trust that is moving toward union with the one who is to be trusted. So having knowledge of Jesus as the Son of God and believing it's true only puts us on the same footing as demons. Because according to James, the brother of Jesus, even the demons believe and tremble. The difference in having belief about someone and having trust in someone is as R.C. Sproul puts it, it's the difference in believing an empty chair will support you if you sit and trusting that the chair will support you when you sit. So it's the believer who trusts continuously in Jesus as Messiah who has eternal life. And verse 11 tells us eternal life is something which God gave. Reminding us as John Calvin says, it is given because we are destitute of it. And it's God who determined that Jesus the Messiah is the only means by which salvation can be obtained. So against the circulating false teaching, The believer accepts God's salvific gift in Jesus Christ knowing that it's the God-man who had to die because only gods could sufficiently bear the full penalty for their sins. Believers know that the God-man had to die because salvation comes from God and God alone. Believers know that the God-man had to die because only the God-man could effectively mediate between a holy God and sinful humanity, restoring peace where there was only enmity. And prior to verse 10, John is focused on the external, objective evidence about God's testimony at Jesus, about Jesus as the Messiah. But here in verse 10, he draws attention to an internal, subjective testimony. The believer has a testimony in himself, John says. By the Spirit's working, the objective evidence regarding Jesus' Messiahship, it's taken root and it assures you and I that indeed we have the son because as it says in Romans 8:16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The spirit continuously assures God's people that we have eternal life in Christ. People of God, that should be a tremendous source of worship and encouragement for us. First, this revelation about the historical Jesus and his salvific works given to us through God's testimony should be an occasion for for much joy and abundant worship. He chose us. Songs of praise, lifted hands of worship, knees bowed in submission giving of our time, our talents, and our treasures. These should all be joyous expressions to a loving God who has given us Jesus Christ. And second, we should be encouraged because we have assurance of our salvation, which no other religion other than Christianity guarantees. And why? Because only Christianity is salvation by grace alone. In every other religion, one can only hope that their good works will outweigh their bad. But the Christian is assured of their salvation because it is brought about by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen. We can consequently face every day knowing that whatever our trial, whatever the setback, regardless of how much you suffer, that we have been sealed by the Spirit who bears witness that we are indeed children of God yes. and that it is Christ who holds us fast. Yes. But maybe you're here this morning and you would, you would call yourself a believer, but you are presently struggling with assurance. Brother or sister, I would encourage you to rest in the knowledge that our assurance is looking away from self, and to Christ alone. He alone has made a way for us to be reconciled to God so that you and I can face the death and judgment knowing that our salvation is secure, that we have the hope of heaven where we can enjoy the presence of Christ forever to the praise of his glory. But for unbelievers, there is no hope of heaven because they do not believe God. Instead, John says, unbelievers, they make God a liar because they have rejected the testimony God has given concerning his son. And this this is a sobering thought because at Jesus' baptism, it's God who pronounced, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So, So who is the person to declare God's pronouncement to be untrue? Who is it that has the effrontery to call God a liar? Again, John John has made it clear. You either accept or you reject the Messiah. There is no morally neutral. To attack the truthfulness of God is to attack the very character of God himself, which is why John Stott remarks, unbelief is not a misfortune to be pitied. It is a sin to be deplored. God gives his testimony with royal authority and you and I are in no way to reject that it is not an acceptable option. To persist in unbelief is to to reject God in the spirit of truth who testifies and to do so in favor of the testimony of God's primary adversary, Satan. The one whom the scriptures declare is the father of lies. And if that's you this morning know that you too can have eternal life in Jesus Christ. But perhaps your reasoning, I need more information. There are just too many questions unanswered. How can you expect me to have confidence in something that transpired so long ago of which I was never a witness? But that's it. You don't have to be because God is. He is is the witness, and that, my friends, is enough. He provides a testimony of self-revelation in the person of Jesus Christ, and he says, believe in what I tell you. He is my son, the one whom I sent. So God sent Jesus in a lowly, dirty manger so that you might believe. God confirmed him at his baptism so that you might believe. Christ was reviled and rejected, suffered at the hands of guilty men upon a Roman cross, bearing the penalty of man's odious offenses against a righteous God so that you might believe. But God didn't reject him. God didn't abandon abandon him in the grave. No, God raised him up so that you might believe and have eternal life. And God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth because it's all about Jesus. Believe in Jesus the Messiah, God incarnate today, and be saved. And if my grandfather were here today, he'd leave you with these words. Have you been redeemed? Have you been washed by the blood of the Lamb? Let us pray. Father, we stand in awe of such a compelling and wondrous love. And when we are confronted with Your Word, we realize that it is You who are worthy, and we are not. That we are the sinner and you are the Savior. And yet, because of what Christ has accomplished, you call us righteous. What manner of love is this? That the king of the universe would give up his kingly splendor to rescue traitorous, wretched creation so that we could be called children of God. Thank you for bringing us into your family. And may we respond with praise and thanksgiving. And that is not just lip service, but that our verbal testimony would be one that matches our lives, a living testimony unto you because of the testimony you have given us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for loving us when we are unlovable. And thank you for your Holy Spirit you. yes. who seals and guide us yes. until the day of redemption. Yes. Yes. And we yes. pray these things in Christ's name. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.